0: Welcome to the Rodcast I'm your host, Dr. Rod So my guest today is a trained chef uh, collector of artifacts and art from around the world Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him years ago uh, in the middle of the bush in, uh, Indonesia, very happy to, to, be able to chat with my, um, long steamed Kiwi friend. Welcome to the broadcast, Mark Jackson.
1: Thank you, Rod. Great to be on. Many thanks.
0: Um, there's so much I, I, I'd, I'd love to ask you, uh, in this short space, but, um, probably maybe starting from the beginning and and uh tell us a little bit about like how you got started because i know you trained you know as a chef and don't do that today uh full time uh, even though you're sort of a great host of of fantastic dinner parties so um yeah how did i mean how did you get started and how did you make that transition uh to where you are today
1: mm, good question i think uh my father was very key not for me to take my hospitality skill sets into university uh, portfolio. So he insisted I become a, uh, a chef and I um, spent many hours writing many letters all over New Zealand to get an apprenticeship. And in those days, apprenticeships were seen to be a very solid form of uh, training and commitment. So I was very fortunate to get a, a city and girls uh uh, apprenticeship in in Auckland, and I left the far north of New Zealand and uh, ventured there and started training as a chef, first as a kitchen hand, and then um, getting into um, the top echelons mm-hmm. of uh, that that establishment. And then I left and went to London, and probably from there the, the the catering was always going to be a vehicle for travel. It was um, I don't think I ever saw it as a long term. It was more of an opportunity to get around and see the world and get out and get amongst it, and I, I became fortunate and picked up a few jobs in London with some of the more esteemed restaurants and Connaught rooms, etc. And then I um, managed to get a job with um, Lord Davis of Leek, um, really looking after his family and himself in Highgate, and, and uh, he, he gave me a, a wonderful, wonderful vision of London. But at the same time, I'd already applied for a... A job as an expedition from Johannesburg back to London on one of the overland tour groups, and uh, that came up as an opportunity a year later. I, I took it um, with with um, Lord Davis encouraging me to go and dropping me off at the station to go. So it was uh, very much that was the first expedition into mm, the greater yonder. Um, besides a number of hitchhiking trips around Turkey, etc., but. Yeah, that was where it really started, and I realised then that catering wasn't just an industry that you could sit in the kitchen for the rest of your life, you could get out and do other things, and uh, that remote work really appealed to me, and the cultures that I met along the way through Africa were just the start of many to come, and then I got into um, more the industrial side of the hospitality, and, and that led to mine sites in Western Australia, and there I took on project management roles, setting up mining camps um, just south of Mikathara, a little place called Kew uh, for place of mining, and uh, got introduced to the extractive industries. And from there I ended up being um, asked to go to Papua New Guinea, of which I went to Porgera Gold mine right up in the highlands, and uh, started working as a catering manager in the highlands, and Started um, taking on the big infrastructure projects for big camps and big construction and um, was with them for 10 years. And uh, from that point, I got moved into um, uh, Fleur Daniel, setting up a camp for a a large construction project in Sulawesi in Indonesia. At that point, um, one of our uh, clients or, or one of our contractors was International SOS, then known as AEA. And that was back in 97. And I worked with AEA for uh, as one of our contractors to the project for two years and got to know them very well, got to know um, some of the earlier icons of the company, Richard Landock and um, Michael Hancock, Olive Fenema uh, and the team very well. We worked uh, on delivering a, a wide scope of services to the project and um, they sent uh, uh, Dr. Miles Neri to see me for a five minute conversation and that three hours later that ended and 23 years later i'm still with the group
0: in, in typical miles fashion
1: <laughs> classic yes yeah
0: um so i mean tell us a little bit about sort of the uh, you know you mentioned you know these mining projects and i know today you work on sort of very complex programs and and projects that sometimes are you know, starting from, from scratch. Tell us a little bit about what's your day-to-day look like, essentially.
1: Well, if there's one thing that's consistent about my job is there's no day-to-day. There's, every day theres is different. Um, and every project I do is different as well. So the the key thing for me is to understand one-hour client. So obviously the, those are key things and what that client's after to achieve and whether it be setting up a mine site in Ghana, for a large extractive mining company, their their needs and wants are going to be quite interesting. But for me, it's not necessarily about the establishment of the mining company. It's about the establishment of ourselves as an operator in those environments and what needs to be in place to do that. So particularly for very much the legal aspect, how we'd set up our banking and finance, our company structure, our support network there, and getting to know the right individuals to support our business in that location and that someone's that's got some credibility so that's always a difficult one because you're you're working at quite fast pace to ensure that we get the abilities to deliver the services to the project and whether that project will be a short- term or long term really to determines what we're going to do so yeah it's it's um, it always different it's always it depends if it's a short-term project exploration or it's a long-term operational setup construction project it's we've done a health review assessment or we've got some established understanding of and they all tend to be a little bit different though
0: when you have such a complex project you know tying the 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 gastronomy angle to it the saying there's too many cooks in in the kitchen i mean (laughs) I, i can imagine that that's something that you have encountered more than once with these complex projects i mean how do you sort of
1: approach that yeah, certainly understanding who those stakeholders are is key, and too many kitchen, cooks in the kitchen certainly spoil the broth, but the, the interesting thing here is bringing an analogy and catering is to get the right recipe, to get the right results, means that we need to have gone with the right team. So next to me there's traditionally been a very good medical director, uh, and between the two of us and a good sales business development person, we can map the right solutions. But certainly the, um, and the classic phrase of mise en place of, of catering, the advanced preparation is key in understanding every little detail. And I remember working with Tim Mailer on the Kara Sea project in the Arctic, of which was a rapid mobilization of you know 13 icebreaker vessels uh, for the summer in 2014 the detail that we got down into was down to the stationery that was going on to each vessel. Uh, and the equipment lists were huge lines. Uh, and we spent hours and hours making sure that these vessels that would be right up in the Arctic, well above the Arctic Circle, were equipped to deal with anything they needed to deal with. And uh, so equipping them for those months that they're away for that five months was essential. And that was just thinking forward and, and multiplying it out. So Advanced preparation.
0: I mean, I think that's such a such a a key point is is you know to 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 prepare in advance, use the same recipe. But when you are running projects in so many different parts of of the world, you know you mentioned um, you know some very cold climates, and then now you are doing some work in in tropical locations. There must be an element of you know that cultural local sensitivity that 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 is really important when may even if you're using the same recipe i mean how do you suss that out in especially in a a country you've never been before
1: yeah it's and understand that the culture we're going to will be they're always different but the fundamentals remain the same it's a case of finding the conduits so for us in the tropical countries it's it's either sport or hospitality that, that play a key role. So food, I mean, in uh, not so much in the Arctic job wasn't a priority, but food in the uh, Caribbean scene is, is a priority and you need to understand those things. In Indonesia, for instance, uh, food plays a key role in, in how you get across things, but um, more that, the respect of the culture that we were going to was key the the situation in in some of those countries like indonesia for instance uh, where when i first got to indonesia it was very evident that my brusque approach that i'd learned in papua new guinea where it was a very effective communication tool was not effective in indonesia more of a javanese approach and very soft and and being assertive in your direction just was never going to go across and so Every every region you have to change your style to suit what you're listening to. And in China, for instance, with the Chinese team, it was very much explaining in detail what what the outcomes we wanted to achieve were going to be. But it just took time and a bit of a different approach in each one of them. Adapting adapting to each one.
0: Yeah, you know, and I guess adapting is is something that you have to be pretty quick in terms of thinking on your feet and. Perceiving, you know, what those cultural nuances are. I, I imagine sometimes things haven't gone as well, and so you've had to adapt quite quickly to some some hairy situations. Uh, can Can you maybe recall one of your most memorable or
1: or, uh, or, a, or a hairy situation that stands out for you? Yeah, there's two that come to mind. One of the first ones was um, we were working in Liberia um, for an extractive industry there, and uh, the client, uh, myself, and a, and a chap from Control Risks were in a vehicle travelling to Monrovia for a meeting uh, from Buchanan, and uh, we got stopped at a roadblock and and arrested, and uh, with with you know the guns through the window sort of style, and and asked to return to Buchanan to face charges for uh, a situation the client had got himself into. And on return to Buchanan, the, the client was locked up in the local jail. Um, and the the medical team, the, the control risk team, were not allowed anywhere near him, but the, the medical team were allowed to look after him. So we'd convinced the, uh, the local police commander that, look, he really doesn't need to be in an open prison jail. We'd Let's put him in your office for overnight, which we did. And the, the the saga continued. The next day, he was put into the local prison. And the only person I'd let in there was myself. So I was locked in prison all day with him. Um, and so we eventually, we got him out, and we got him out of the country. But, yeah, that was a very interesting scenario. So that was one. And I think the other one that stands out is uh, another a dear friend of of both of ours, and that's Shadi, who works in um, the consulting group now. Him and I were um, mobilized at 8 o'clock one night to go to Bahrain to um, assist in uh, repatriation of mortal remains from the Bahrain ferry disaster, which had happened the evening before. And Shadi had been with the group for two weeks, and suddenly he was their interpreter inside a, a, a morgue. Uh, which had been set up to handle 50 people arriving. Um, so it was a very dramatic time, and we had to think very quickly how we were going to achieve the outcomes necessary. And so the British ambassador and the people on the ground were fantastic, but we were meeting them at 2 o'clock in the morning uh, to try and get people on the right planes to the right places in the right time frame. Um, so it was incredibly... Um, fast-paced thinking to think, okay, how do we get the best solution here and and, and work it through? And it, it all came right and the right people doing the right jobs. But I think Shadi always remembers his first two weeks of the job were founding. He's still with us, so it's obviously we didn't put him off.
0: A hell of a induction. Indeed. I guess you mentioned, you know, fast-paced thinking on your feet and, and um, being prepared for kind of any scenario. I, I guess that so- sounds something similar to what most people would imagine, like working in a high pressure kitchen environment where, you know, you you have to, to, to really be on your toes for so many hours, all the adrenaline running, all, all the rest. Are there any things in particular that you think you've retained from your years in the kitchen in terms of, uh, skills that you develop that you now use um on what you work on today
1: yeah i think probably resilience and endurance is one thing working in a kitchen hospitality is incredibly demanding there's um if you're in a five-star restaurant in a classical sense your communication structure is is multiple tiers of um cogs turning at once to produce a, a fine meal and um I think those skill sets of the preparation and presentation of a dish would were always sync to your abilities as a, as a team to get together. Um, you know, getting a, a steak out with with 10 dishes to be medium rare at the same time as the um, the lobster Thermidor was coming out and all being hot at the same time is, is a skill that um, not many people appreciate. And the skill of that was very much once again in the planning and in preparation and making sure that everything was right. But for me the one the one skill set that I took from hospitality is that um, hospitality itself is has been a blessing for me in in my business where I've been able to you know take uh, some of our clients and and they've become friends through sitting down, having a fine meal with them and just sitting down talking through problems and addressing it over a, over a dinner. Um, and that, that could have been anywhere. So it, it's worked very well because it allowed the, the relaxation of a conversation to be over a lot more, um, not such a disciplined environment as a boardroom. So it's, it's, I've made a lot of dear friends that have stayed with me for my career.
0: I always found that really, your ability to, to, to do that really fascinating. Um, so to give some context to it, When you would host uh, dinners in Indonesia, remember one of the things you would do is, because you know so many people, you would strategically pick individuals from different backgrounds. And sometimes they were very different, you know, backgrounds and cultures. But you somehow knew that they would sort of click together. I mean, talk a little bit about how your thought process and, and sort of how you would you know, figure out, you know, how, how to, how to, how to set up the perfect sort of, you know, dinner table.
1: Mm. So obviously the, obviously the, uh, every situation is different. And I, I, I had a, a situation just a couple of weeks ago where I was hosting some very famous cricketers for a dinner and, uh, uh, a good colleague of ours here named Clive Gillard uh, was at the, at the dinner and um, I sat him next to Sir Clive Lloyd. Um, and it was just one of those fortunate timings and, and incidents where I could put people together that had a, a, a very interesting dynamic background. Of course, uh, aviation sit next to Sir Clive Lloyd was interesting for him as well. Uh, and so they, they those things come together. But for me, it is... The personality uh, and skill set that those individuals have are all fascinating in themselves. And you know, if you take um, some of our our people that work for for us as a company, international SOS, they're just the most amazing people. I mean, I remember sitting next to a lady in in one of our medical services conferences, and I said, "So, how'd you get on?" Uh, eventually, the conversation came around to she had rode across the Atlantic. And so these are sort of people that I think just get attracted into a circle with us. And uh, for me, it's I've just been blessed to get to connect with these people and I recognize their skill set and I recognize that there is an ability to be a conduit for many things. And I just, I, I run with it. I don't think there's any particular recipe. I'm just probably maybe blessed with an extrovert personality that allows to do that to happen. I think you're
0: right. There's There's so many people that, have different passions, but you know, do sort of the same same work towards the same end goal of of what we do in in our organization. Do do you think there's some sort of similar wavelength or something that people, you know, what, what's what's the the common denominator? I guess for for folks that that you've met and have worked with so many years in or, in the organization that have you know maybe a similar passion or a similar mindset that that makes them you know long timers
1: mm, i think uh, there's there's multiple the, the adventure of what we do is is our careers is is key travel um and i mean as as mark was saying in his discussion there's just so many different angles we approach and particularly in particular our company that we have so many different things coming at us from different fields and industries, that those individuals tend to have a common thread of having survived their um, development in, in quite tough places, whether it be in a in a, a hostile environment or a developing world environment, or either in in, in a another uh, city in the world. But when you get to sit down with the people, you find out the common threads tend to be either. They've got uh, a fascination towards travel or um, adventurous adventurous spirit, have uh, been on outward bound as children or have trekked the Alps or have done something unique. And I mean, I don't think there are many people that are, are nine to five people in medical services. They either tend to like to jump out of helicopters or you know, rescue people or burning boats or things.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, is is there any any country culture place in the world that you you still haven't been to where
1: you you'd still like to go yeah i, I yeah, certainly i think i think the south america is the next next um discovery for me it's just most I've, I've been blessed to get into guyana recently and i've been working there for the last 4 years and it's showing me that that, that whole south america continent which is one that just has never been on my radar greatly is now firmly on my radar. And, and just fascinating to see the, the history and all the aspects that go with that. And I mean, like small as Guyana is, it's an absolute privilege to meet the people there and what they do uh, on the small coastal town on, on just below Venezuela. That just amazing. And, and uh, it's uh, right on the edge of the Amazon and, you get to fly into the interior and see these amazing waterfalls and things as part of the job. Um, it's, it's, it's quite incredible. So I think South America is the next one.
0: I think you really enjoy it because, you know, being being Mexican, <laughs> I always see when you go to different countries, there's at least something that's similar to, to your culture. For me, it's it's a lot of times food-related. So, like, when we would... Sit down in Indonesia. I I noticed in Indonesia, like on Sundays, you know, everybody would get together and cook together. Cooking was part of like the the fun of being together on a Sunday, and then you know, eating and doing the karaoke. And and similarly in Mexico, you know, my family on on Sundays would get together, and you know, the bigger the family, the bigger the, the meal. When you first went to to uh, South America, Tianna to, to the project. What you know besides the food thing? Were there any similarities that you had seen, even though you haven't been there to say, oh, that's something we do back home.
1: It's so interesting that they do it here. Well, I think the biggest conduit for us would have been cricket. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, cricket. I mean, cricket was cricket was immediately, as soon as they knew I was a New Zealander, it was the Black Caps were were seen as and small country heroes for them. And unless they were playing the West Indies, of course, and then that was always a little bit different. But the cricket was a a conduit that as soon as they knew you were from a country that played cricket, they were very keen to have a conversation, sit down and talk to you. And since then we've we've worked with uh, youth cricket in Guyana very successfully. And it's interesting because cricket has played an interesting conduit in my life with the company. And I'll give you two examples. The first one is from Liberia, where we were we were being you know, very much challenged to deliver a, a very complex project uh, in two hospitals in Yekapa and Buchanan. Um, and we were we were being challenged on a number of fronts, from making sure all the contractual aspects were in place. But um, one of the key key conduits for me was getting to know the supply chain team and the and the procurement structure of the company you're working for and it ended up the biggest conduit was a small cricket bat I bought back from New Zealand signed by Richard Hadley and from that point on I had a dear friend for life and uh, who still contacts me now and he's from Calcutta but um, it it just created a relationship that was just um, it just opened up so many avenues for success and the same's happened in Guyana. Uh, We did an auction uh, for raising money for youth cricket recently where um, we sponsored a, a, a dinner and we auctioned off some um, signed memorabilia from some West Indies player and another Richard Hadley bat actually, bizarrely. And um, we raised $8,000 for youth cricket in, in Guyana. And wow. people were just, it's amazing that cricket conduit had worked very well. It was just a, And yet again, hospitality was a key component of that as well the discipline and setting up an event and then making it successful and understanding. I think that was, uh, that worked very well.
0: And what's, what's the youth cricket sort of program? Is it to sort of just to bring the community
1: together or? Yeah, it's very much to keep, uh, the children in sport, get them active. And, um, obviously spread the word for female cricket as well and get them going and we sponsor, uh, a um, one inner city club, to, that, that does a cricket camp and a outreach and we sponsor them for coaching and uh, 10 of them, 10 of the um, youth members as well as we teach them all basic life support and ongoing wellness programs uh, inside the club itself. As well, we host um, events there and we do some of our training for drills and development uh, like mass casualty training on the cricket ground, so we've 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 got involved in the ground from a, a company perspective as well.
0: Well, that's great! So lo- the the uh, the Trojan horse is cricket, but then you can <laughs> you can teach you know first aid and, and the rest. Uh, yeah, that's 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 such a good idea because I mean things like you know football, um, it's it's one of together with food probably. The most universal icebreaker, you know, in any. It happens to me, like if, I, if I'm in the middle of of Africa and they say, "Where are you from?" and I say, "Mexico." The, the first thing they always say is "Chicharito," from and, you know, <laughs> he doesn't play there anymore. But so it's it's um, yeah, food and food and sport are good.
1: Mm. Good, uh... I think there's one missing. That's alcohol. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, uh, the, the 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 Caribbean is is rum is is, is very famous. I'd never had, I never drank a lot of rum in my life. And uh, when they introduced me to rum and coconut water at one of the cricket games, it was uh, it was a fantastic night out and and uh, without any residue. So it was a it was a well received drink. I've and, never, uh, never
0: tried that. Sounds
1: That good. is absolutely superb. I can highly recommend an El Dorado on ice with coconut water. Highly recommended.
0: Yeah, very smart because you have the you know the all the electrolytes from the from the coconut.
1: Yes, that no, was a, it. was a win-win situation. <laughs> and I've, I've 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 lugged many a many a bottle of uh, El Dorado and shared the love across New Zealand now.
0: Yeah, it must it must be famous now. Yeah. <laughs> um listen mark I, I know you have to go uh thanks thanks for your great stories I, I know we could probably do another five episodes um just touching the surface with with all the the great experiences you've had um besides the rum and coconut water is there anything and this is something i ask you know all folks on the on the episode what's the one thing or anything you would you would recommend to the listeners that has made a massive impact on your health and well-being for the last uh, twelve months that that you would recommend.
1: Family, I mean, I, having been uh, stuck for many months in in Guyana and not getting back to New Zealand, or, you know, just the importance of family, but not just the immediate family, the family that you work with as well. You know, just just listening and hearing about what the team is and. I think the one thing I've learned a great deal is that to listen, and just to hear uh, more and more about what people are experiencing in their individual lives, and certainly in in my family unit, my immediate family unit, there is um, yeah the, the aftermath of the pandemic has taught us to be open and, and communicate as much as possible and. Really, with with the girls and Sarah and Alicia and my dearest wife Nessie, it's um we've just had a, a a great increase in communication. I think just ready to make sure we're we're all looking after each other. So no, but uh, I think that uh, for all of us, the other the other takeaway for me the last couple of years is being, the, especially as an expatriate, you need to give back. You need to make sure you give back as many examples back into the teams as possible. That's my other family, so I mean it's um, it's a pleasure to be able to work with the Guyanese team and and give them back some of the skill sets I've learned, and uh, that's proven to be quite successful.
0: Oh, that's that's great. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure people will will uh, take that on board.
1: <laughs> hey, no, thanks Rob, much appreciated. Well, thanks again, Mark. No worries, and uh, look forward to hearing the other ones. All right, Sounds take good. care. Nice. Cheers, eh.
0: Hey, thanks for listening, folks. If you enjoyed that, please hit subscribe, like, and share. See you next time.